Welcome to the Burn Music Show. Burn is a place for you to discover and learn about some of the greatest artists in rock, metal, alt, and punk. We'll discuss both present-day artists and dive into the pioneers from the past who helped light the fuse. It's with the hopes of turning you onto some of the new music and or perhaps rekindle your love with some old favorites. I'm your host, Dimitri. Let's go. So we're locked indoors under a statewide stay-at-home order due to the coronavirus, and I've had this itch to do something a little more creative with my time. I've never done a podcast before, and outside of a handful of times, I've never really even listened to them either. But I thought it would be a good idea to get on a mic, or in this case, my cell phone, and reach out to some of my fellow quarantined music junkies out there and offer up some music recommendations that might help pass the time or just get your mind off of things. Although I do listen to all different types of music, I tend to lean more towards the rock slash metal side of the spectrum. But regardless of the genre, as long as it has got some edge, originality, and a decent story to tell, I'm all ears. And seeing that this is my first ever podcast, I thought it would be fitting to discuss the first ever album that I purchased. The album that literally set my world on fire as a kid, and still does to this day. The year was 1983. I was seven years old and in second grade. Ronald Reagan was our president. Return of the Jedi, Flashdance, Trading Places, and War Games were some of the top box office movies at the time. Speaking of war games, the last nuclear scare of the Cold War happened that year after the Soviet Union mistakenly took a NATO exercise as a nuclear first strike. Sally Ride became the first woman in space aboard the space shuttle Challenger. It was the Challenger's maiden voyage. Michael Jackson, Phil Collins, Duran Duran, and the Culture Club were quickly becoming some of the world's most popular musicians. And I, well, I was going to a record store with my dad and my older brother to pick out a record. See, years ago, we had to go to these places called record stores. That's where we got our music. I would spend what seemed like hours searching the aisles of these stores, checking out their inventory, and looking for new artists. And these stores were few and far between. Outside of going to a mall, you were lucky if your town or neighboring suburb even had one. For us, that store was Rolling Stone Records, a now locally famous record store in Norwich, Illinois, which is just steps from the city of Chicago. This was our Tower Records on Sunset Strip. Bands coming into town would host signing events. You knew you'd always be able to find whatever music you were looking for, and you'd always have the chance of occasionally bumping into a celebrity. Back in the 80s, we didn't have any way to sample the music we were seeing in the racks. There was no internet. There was no Spotify, YouTube, or iTunes. A lot of what went into our purchases for unknown artists was going to these record stores, talking to staff, reading magazines, and of course, the packaging of the music itself. That was the ultimate branding of the artist. I remember getting drawn into an album that had a black cover, but also a giant black matted star on it which I later learned was a pentagram, and that made it even that much cooler. The album was Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil. It was a bifold album, so it opened up sort of like a folder. And inside were four dudes that looked like superheroes from hell. Leather, long hair, grease paint, spikes, fire, all thinly wrapped with a veil of evil undertones. Now, I know a lot of younger people recently got exposed to Motley Crue due to their Netflix movie, The Dirt, 
titled after their autobiography, a must read, by the way. And I, and of course, pretty much everyone from my generation knows them. But in 1983, outside of Los Angeles, not many people in the world knew who they were, and I certainly didn't. But damn, the imagery of that record was wild as hell. And as a kid, I literally felt like I was holding the coolest thing in the world. And the second that needle hit the groove of the vinyl, I was hooked. They sounded just like they looked. Now, I'm not going to go into the album and start technically reviewing all the songs. That's not my thing. But I will say that I always saw the Shout at the Devil album as a concept album, like the soundtrack to some sort of post-apocalyptic era. It would be the perfect backdrop to movies like Escape from New York or Mad Max. Actually, it would even make a great backdrop to the current corona pandemic too. It is relentless, in your face, raw, violent, sexy, sleazy, but most importantly, it was authentic. The album drips filth. And if you know anything about Motley Crue, they were some filthy dudes. But it also has some really good songs. Great songs. Anthems that would soon fill arenas around the world for decades. Songs like the bouncy and fist-pumping Shout at the Devil, Looks That Kill, which to me is the perfect pedal-to-the-metal rock song and a great choice to introduce Motley Crue's sleazy gutter-punk vibe to MTV audiences nationwide. Speaking of MTV, again, we didn't have YouTube, TikTok, Instagram. We had MTV on cable television, and they literally brought the artists into our living room through music videos. This was a new concept. It was a breakthrough, yes, but MTV at the time was you know, a still young network. They were trying to get their own footing, and their on-air programming pretty much consisted of new wave and pop bands. What some people might not realize is that in 1983, there weren't many, if any, metal bands dominating the pop charts. Many of the bands you think about when you look back at the 1980s hair metal era, bands like Bon Jovi, Poison, Guns N' Roses, Cinderella, those bands didn't exist yet. The metal scene at the time was mainly occupied by Priest, Motorhead, Maiden, and Ozzy. Even Metallica was relatively unknown. Therefore, by having early success on MTV with the Looks That Kill video, the Shout at the Devil album acted as a catalyst and really helped defining the programming road, at least the programming map, for the rest of the decade for both MTV and radio stations everywhere. Rock was becoming king. Continuing through the album, you'll find no shortage of massive riffs and hooks paired with hair, heavy metal power and punk rock swagger. Classic tracks like Too Young to Fall in Love, Red Hot, Knock 'em Dead, 10 Seconds to Love, and the crew stylistic cover of the Beatles classic Helter Skelter, still one of my favorite covers of all time. Other tracks like In the Beginning, Children of the Beast, and Danger act like ominous thread that gently weave through the album and hold it all together. In 1985, nearly two years after the album was released, controversy basically guaranteed continued sales as the song Bastard attracted the attention of the Parents Music Resource Center, a.k.a. PMRC, which in turn probably attracted the attention of kids everywhere. The violent content of the lyrics of that song landed the crew on PMRC's list of Filthy 15, which forced warning stickers on certain songs and albums due to offensive content. I can't imagine a better selling tool for Motley Crue. This just further fueled the bad boy image and dangerous style the band was so proud to represent. 
All in all, it's just a fun and decadent rock album. And for the record, Vince Neil puts on an absolute clinic on this album. Motley wasn't made to be sung by Dio or Bruce Dickinson. As great as they were, it wouldn't work. They needed more grime, more street cred, and Vince's vocals really do shine throughout this album. I know he's been an easy target the past few years by online critics, but if you don't believe he had vocal range, do me a favor and try singing Shout at the Devil the next time you do karaoke. Now, I get it. This isn't The Abbey Road. It's not Pink Floyd's The Wall. But Motley didn't reinvent the wheel here, okay? But they didn't have to. By reaching back into their bag of influences and pulling from what they knew, they leveraged that with who they were. And in turn, they made one of the most honest and influential metal albums of all time. It's also one of the most important albums of the 1980s in the sense that it helped launch an entire genre. Sure, bands like Quiet Riot, Rat, Dokken, you know, they were around L.A. at the same time and they were trying to do the same thing. But Motley was the first metal band to truly cross over and attract as many female fans as male. And their audience grew exponentially as a result. The commercial success in turn paved the way and gave birth to one of the most epic hard rock slash heavy metal movements ever. And man... We could really use another Motley crew right about now. Well, I hope you enjoyed my first ever podcast. It was a fun album to revisit during the quarantine, but it was even more fun making this episode. Hopefully I've turned someone on to an album they might have known about, but never really listened to. And if that's the case, please go stream it right now. Or maybe you, you have this and it's another reason for you to dust off some of your old vinyl and revisit this gem. Either way, Stay tuned for further episodes and recommendations in the coming days as I highlight one of my favorite newer bands in my next episode. In the meantime, please feel free to find us and follow us, The Burn Music Show or Burn Music Show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And please share and subscribe to The Burn Music Show podcast everywhere podcasts are played. Thank you again for tuning in. Stay safe and healthy and keep on rocking.